respect to speakers who are going to speak today, um, Professor John Mills and uh, Professor Kathy Pushkin. Uh, they are both, if I may put them in the same category, paradigm shifters. They are both people who have written in a way that has aims to change the way we do social and political philosophy. Uh, we already probably know about what they have written, but I will just mention a couple of things. So in the last 20 years or so, Charles Mills has written about um, the racial contract and also the connection between class and race. He has categorized Marxism as white Marxism and wants to make us think about the possibility of uh, radical black liberalism. And I think that's quite a, a fascinating turn uh, for, for all of us to learn from. Um, they have both tried to link uh, political philosophy to our knowledge of how things are in the world in a, in a very intrinsic way. So we're no longer just going to be doing ideal theory. We are going to inform whatever we do in ideal theory by what we know happens in the world. Now that seems simple, but it's actually very hard to do. Uh, the last book that um, Charles Mills has written is, uh, this is going to be a problem, me moving here, and then it's Black Rights, White Wrongs, The Critique of Racial Liberalism. And Catherine Fitchell's last work is on what is global orientation in what is orientation global thinking, and it is both of them, and I think I think more than probably uh, Charles, is using Kant in her work. Um, I'm going to leave that there, and while Kathleen, I might also add that she's worked on this fascinating Liberty Network project where she's done work with African philosophers, and that very much informs her thinking and what she's going to tell us today. So we've got two great speakers, we start with Charles first, and then Kathleen, and then as is always done, there's going to be 50 minutes for discussion. Since we are going to close at lunch, I will try not to go beyond one o'clock. I'm sure all of you will be eager to complete the session and go off for your lunch. I do not fully understand the way the so-called house rules work about hands and fingers, so I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, I will use my own intuition. I will see who wants to speak, and then I will I will try and control the discussion. Uh, I hope many of you will have many interesting things to say about the two speakers who are going to now share their views with us. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, with respect to um, the great points that Mina made um, in terms of use of Kant, I have a paper actually, Black Radical Kantianism, so I'm hoping that the title alone will be sufficient to intrigue you, and that can be found in um, the January issue of Race Philosophical. So this is my attempt to sort of do a black radical appropriation of the racist white guy, Emmanuel Kant. <laughs> so it's great to be here, you know, it's a wonderful occasion, especially for a former colonial, um, somebody from Jamaica, former British colony, as you know, Oxford, Mind, Aristotelian said, all has such a classic historical resonances, so it's great to be here. So um, my paper is part of, um, as, um, as Mina points out, an ongoing project over the past 20 years or so, of trying to bring issues of race, racial justice, and so forth into mainstream political philosophy, where you, know, you, have, you have historically had any discussion of them. 
So um, from that point of view, it's very much a long-term project, and your comments will be appreciated, because even though this paper has appeared already, and there are going, going to be lots of others, and um, usually I end up reprinting, uh, most of my books are in fact essay collections. So from that point of view, your comments will still be welcome. So there's a handout which summarizes essential points. And what I basically start off by saying um, is here's a concept which is you know, very much sort of in routine use in everyday life, in everyday discourse, where I'm based the United States would hardly ever discuss in philosophical circles. So you, know, you have a situation where you, know, you have, um, I'm sure you guys have been following the news, you know, ongoing police killings of an armed black men and women, racial profilings of you know, blacks, Latins, and Muslims, vast differential black and Latins incarceration rates, enduring poverty, employment discrimination, environmental racism, continuing residential and educational segregation. So you have you know, all these you know, things happening in the country as a whole. You have the invocation of um, racial justice sort of norm to appeal to. But philosophers, the guys who, you know, by their very profession, by their expertise, are supposed to be the ones to be sort of weighing in on this stuff and adjudicating stuff, philosophy has been largely absent. In my opinion, largely because of the pernicious influence of John Rawls, which basically oriented this whole thing towards ideal theory. And you know, part of what I've been trying to say for the past few years is that we need to start to get going and doing you know, non-ideal theory. So this paper is sort of part of an installment in that project. And I'm going to sort of um, look at racial justice. And in terms of the sort of background assumptions, the phrase used in the United States is beginning to spread here, critical philosophy of race. And the point of the adjective is to distinguish it from earlier uncritical, that is, racist philosophy of race. And um, the Oxford Handbook of Philosophical Methodology, I have a chapter in that, and I think you can sort of access it online. So you want sort of sense of the background assumptions I'm working with, that's a good place to start with. So Oxford Handbook of Philosophical Methodology, my chapter on critical philosophy of race. Okay, so I start off in section one by contrasting G-justice and T-justice, where G stands for group, and in a, um, a group in general, and then T-justice stands for different theories of justice, for example, Rawlsian, Libertarian, Communitarian. So we presuppose that G, has been in the past and is current as likely in the future, the victim of being just by some set of norms. And then the question is, um, you know, which uh, particular variety of you know, social justice, which particular theory, will sort of be best able to sort of handle the situation of the genes. And genes could be a subset of the human population, um, you know, um, whether races or genders or whatever. But for animal rights activists, obviously, you could sort of broaden G and sort of you know, extend it to non-human animals in general. And then the question is, you know, why do you need G-justice? Why can't you just have social justice as an overarching concept where it includes it? And in theory you could, but the problem has been that in practice, it will usually be the case that the very same prejudices that victimize the group in the first place tend to manifest themselves in the theorization of social justice so that their situation is not dealt with adequately. So in sociopolitical philosophy, as you know, there are different conceptions of groups, and we had a very sophisticated presentation yesterday of how to think of groups. So this group is a far less sophisticated, working with their sort of crude distinction. On the one hand, groups as you know, voluntary organizations, so for example, a religion, a political party, a social club, and then what Anne Codd, in her book on analyzing oppression, calls non-voluntary social groups, so classes, genders, races, and so forth. 
So the, the question would then be, um, how do we handle justice for a particular group, which is an unusual one by these non-voluntary criteria? And so there are two possible ways. So one way is when you say the norms, the assumptions of T-justice are basically okay, but they have not been classically extended to the group. And the obvious example here is that subset of you know, feminist theorists who think that liberalism is basically fine, but the public-private distinction means that the situation of women has not been dealt in an equitable way because women are seen as confined to the family, that's apolitical, that's a historical question of justice don't arise. So then have a sort of challenge, first wave, second wave feminist theorists say no, you know, this is in fact a crucial place where justice takes place, and we sort of rethink liberalism, we need to redraw the boundary of the public-private debate. So there's a sort of clear-cut example where the group thinks that you know, this particular um, right of T-justice, liberal justice, can in fact handle the issue once you sort of appropriately rewrite it. And then the more radical challenge from those people who say no, that T in general is problematic and we need to sort of reject T-justice or maybe even justice. And you know, Marxism, of course, hasn't been in sort of in a good order for a long time, but for those of us old enough, Remember sort of analytic Marxist discussions of the 1970s and 1980s? There's a big debate on whether justice was an appropriate concept within Marxist theory or whether this whole language of rights and justice that's part of the alienated bourgeois order and we need to sort of move to, beyond that to society where justice doesn't even apply. Or if you think, for example, of you know, the contrast between gay justice and queer theory, and queer theory is basically saying that we need to sort of rethink all our conventional categories, and once we do that, we recognize that you know, justice, again, is a concept that needs to be transcended. So what would the example be for race? Well, an example of the sort of straightforward case would be people say, you know, we need affirmative action for historical subordinated groups, and you can then sort of justify that as a liberal framework. So that's the obvious, boringly reformist program. And then the radical, exciting program is when you say, if you think of race as a kind of metonym or signifier for the relation between the global north and the global south as a whole, we need to sort of rethink this whole relationship and appeal not to conventional Western or Northern frameworks, but rather, for example, to non-Western axiologies, for example, in Africa or in Asia or Native America. So that's exciting stuff. But alas, guys, I'm going to be in the boringly reformist one. So the boringly reformist one, I'm going to say, let's take T-justice theories and see whether, you know, despite in our, um, this history, we can get exciting stuff out of them once we take race into account. Okay, so then in section two, I point out the peculiarity of race in that it compares some of the other um, concepts, it's historical been more subject to metaphysical challenge. So that you know, classes, as you know, um, your, your late Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, said, well, in society, don't exist, so obviously classes don't exist. But apart from um, outlier positions like these, most people sort of recognize that class exists, genders exist, and so forth. Whereas in the case of race, in recent times, um, there's been a sort of question, where does race even exist? So historically, in the sort of period of the classic European domination of the planet, you know, races were seen as these biologically demarcated subsections of the human race, they're linked to different geographical origins, they're color-coded, and there's racial hierarchy, that's a sort of crucial thing. So um, Non-critical race theory is basically race theory that has racist assumptions. There's a racial hierarchy, 
and the different metrics by which you measure this hierarchy, the two most important being intellectual capabilities and moral character, but there's also aesthetic work and there's a sort of long history of aesthetic racism in the beautiful white race as contrasted with all the other races, their spiritual propensities and their physical stuff. So most experts thought there were sort of three to five basic races, but the traditional sort of lumpers versus splitters distinction arises here too, and you find some race theory saying, oh, there's 60 or 70 races. So anyway, the crucial point, as I say, for races, race theory, that the races are hierarchical order, and there's a general R1 superiority. So it's already established my analytic bona fides. I'm going to use in the letters R1, R2, both because you can say, well, this guy's doing analytic class after all. And also, because white people get less nervous when talk about R1s and R2s, they say, it's not about R1s, not about us. So R1s and R2s, so the R1s are the privileged race, the R2s are subordinated race. So as I say, with the discrediting of racism, at least partially, as a result of the World War II, as a result of the Holocaust, as a result of you know, the sort of you know, official promulgation of scientific racism by the Nazis, you then get people saying in the post-war period, race doesn't even exist, in this sense anyway. So critical philosophy of race over the past two decades, one sort of key themes has been, what is the metaphysics of race? And as you know, once analytic philosophers get their hands on anything, there's immediate proliferation of positions, apart from sort of difficult of the matter, sort of matter, there's always concern about unemployed grad students. I don't know about you guys, <laughs> major problem is this, unemployed grad students, so you need to proliferate distinctions so people can have something to work on. So uh, according to my recent tracking, the five most important current positions are, um, there's, sorry, there's eliminativism or error theory, that's racist exists in no sense, neither biologically nor socially. There's anti-eliminativist constructionism, races do exist, though not as biological and social constructs. There's, there's egalitarian biologism or realism or naturalism. Races do exist biologically after all. The post-war consensus was wrong, but they don't exist in a hierarchy. And people have expertise in sort of following the latest stuff in terms of DNA would claim that recent findings in terms of population genetics shows that the traditional races do in fact exist, that there are these clusterings that you can show there are really these sort of five or so basic races. But of course they emphasize not in a social hierarchy. Yes, there were hybrid positions. Um, races are both biological ends and social constructs. There's a bifurcated ontology view that races exist separately, so it's not a unified ontology, a bifurcated one. They're both natural races and social races. So there's all this sort of interesting metaphysical stuff, as I say. Think of your hard work in graduate students, and you need, need for them sort of fancy stuff to work on. But my claim would be that for the moral issue, metaphysical issue does not actually matter that much. Because even if you take the eliminativist position that races do not exist, you can always say there are groups who are thought to be racist. <clears throat> so um, a philosopher called Lawrence Blum says races don't exist, but racialized social groups do. So if you're doing racial justice stuff, that's actually all you need. Does a black race exist? No. Have people been racialized as black? Yes. Have people been discriminated against on that basis? Yes. Then we're going to sort of call corrective measures for that racial justice. Okay, so moving on now to section three, and then go to the interesting question of the periodization of race. So in other words, if it's not the case that it's possible that there's no natural existence for race, 
then Wendell's race comes into the world as a social construct. And there are two main periodizations. There's a view of race as model, and this was very popular in left circles in particular, because the NCR sort of sort easily fits in to Marx's accounts. Where does race come from? Race a product of imperial expansionist capitalism. So the West goes out into the world, it finds these peoples, it's uh, expropriating them, it's enslaving them, and it's at the same time as we have you know, liberalism and modernity, and sort of statement of equality of all people, we reconcile that very simply. Here's an ideology that's going to sort of justify European expansionism. So it's a sort of, you know, sort of, you know, made, made, you know, sort of, you know, made to wear very natural, sort of left, 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 left account. So this account has been very popular in left circles, race, a product of modernity, and Western expansionism. But there were always people who challenged that account, and in the past decade or so, their voice have gotten louder. And in particular, there's an Israeli classicist, a guy called Benjamin Isaac, has a huge book, The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity, and his argument is, no, that's false. You're assuming that we should only think of race in terms of modern color-coded races, but this is how the sense, the essence of race of racism is. And once you sort of detach the sort of you know, criterion of color, we can then see that race and racial thinking goes back to the ancient world. And in particular, Isaac argues, Aristotle is a pioneering racist theorist of the Western world. So this sort of very interesting debate: do we see racism as modern or racism as going sort of all the way back? So for all purposes, since we're concerned about justice, sort of crucial question is, how does this affect discussions of racial injustice? And one argument would be that even if the long periodization, that is the periodization of Isaac, and people agree with him, is correct, you would not necessarily have racial injustice, because it could be that there's no institution in the classical world or the medieval world which was structured around race. So you sort of Rawlsian criterion of justice and injustice as having sort of institutional reference, then there's sort of no institutionalized, institutionalized structures around sort of racial hierarchy, you would not have had racial injustice. Now you could have had um, racial wrongs in terms of Rawls's distinction between the institutional and the individual. You could have people's racist views committing racial wrongs, but that's to be condemned by ethics rather than political theory. Okay, so our focus then of this and sort of dashing in sec section four, challenge of ethnicity. Given the sort of weirdness of the metaphysics of race, given that there's all this debate, why not fall back on ethnicity as a category? Because unlike race, the periodization of ethnicity seems fairly straightforward. Once you have human groups sort of demarcating themselves, with the guys down here by the river, they're the bad guys up on the mountain, us, then you have ethnic differentiation. And ethnic differentiation seems to go sort of pretty well to sort of the origin of the human race. So you could then work with ethnicity as a category, and ethnicity is sort of standing differentiated from race in terms of the appeal to things like you know, custom, language, tradition, and so forth. So why not just work with ethnicity as a less troublesome category than race? So my counter argument is that race attains differential significance in modernity. So even if the proponents of the long periodization are correct, and that race pre-exists in modern epoch, it certainly attains a huge differential significance in modernity, because as I say, Europeans go out, out, out into the world, they encounter other peoples, 
It's a part of the course of the enlightenment and the taxonomization of the world is, is obviously very important. The question is, where do these new humans fit? So we then get these in the racial taxonomies, and then these taxonomies are enforced by power relations, so race then becomes a significant way of structuring the world. So from that point of view, you could say that in modernity, race tends to swamp ethnicity. So what justifies um, Native American expropriation, Australian expropriation, European imperialism and colonialism is not the distinct um, national identities, whether it's you know, the British, or the French, or the Dutch. It's the superiority of the white race. So the argument would then be that though ethnicity continues to exist, though there are tensions and conflicts and wars within the European empires themselves, there's a sort of overarching global categorization of whites versus non-whites. So that's the sort of argument that you know, race then becomes important as a global category in a way that ethnicity does not. And uh, I quote as somebody of a certain age, if you know what I mean, um, famous words of Jean-Paul Sartre, the text was crucial for my generation, France pronounced the wretched of the earth, and Sartre has this great opening line, this way back in 1961 in the French original, not so long ago, the earth numbered 2,000 million inhabitants, 500 million men, and 1,500 million natives. The former had the word, the others had the use of it. So you have to make allowance for um, insensitivity to gender. So basically, you get sort of global um, you know, differentiation. We, the civilized West, we're ruling the world, and there you know, are these guys who are in this other category. And the interesting thing is that this dichotomization in the population of the planet has a wonderful formal ratification. Because usually when you deal with historical stuff, especially for analytic philosophers, it's you know, fuzzy and sort of hard to make sharp distinctions. But there's this wonderful sort of clear-cut, discrete event, which needs to be better known than it is. And when I mention this, I usually ask people, how many of you have ever heard of this? So after I mention, I'm going to ask how many of you have ever heard of it. So this is after World War I. It's 1919, Paris, the Versailles Conference, you know, this terrible you know, war has taken place. We must make sure nothing else ever happens again, but you know how successful that was. And we basically set up the League of Nations. And most of the world at the time is formally colonized by the European powers. So you know, we look across the planet, everybody, almost everybody's on the rule of the European empires. But there's some exceptions in terms of nations of color. And one of those exceptions is Japan, which is never colonized. And the Japanese delegation says, hey, we need a racial equality court clause in the League of Nations covenant. And the six Anglo-Saxon nations, as they're, they're called, of course, includes Britain, hey, who else would be there? So United Kingdom, United States, Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. The six Anglo-Saxon nations say, are you out of your mind? No way is this happening. Now, how many people have heard of this historical episode? Think of it, and yet you're here at Oxford, you're very well-educated folks, there are a few students, a lot of professors, people don't know this. As I say, it's wonderfully sort of sharp and clear-cut, discrete event which summarizes the whole thing. You cannot have racial equality as part of the League of Nations covenant because that basically says that the world of white racial domination, the rest of the world, that's illegitimate, we need to sort of overturn this whole thing. So they tell the Japanese there's no way that that's happening. 
So you then have, of course, you know, this is fast forwarding to after the World War II, you then have, of course, an emergent body of work with decolonization, the post-colonial theory, you have the growing body of work like Sven Beckert at Harvard, tracing links between the modern capitalism and slavery and colonialism. You have what is called critical international relations theory, which says that in reality, um, sort of story IR tells about its birth is in a completely misleading, you need to sort of recognize race as central, both to international relations and to the theorizations of IR. So you have all this interesting stuff. And what I would suggest is that all of this has implications for political philosophy as philosophers practice it. So that insofar as we're theorizing about justice, we're theorizing about personhood, we're theorizing about liberalism as the most important political class of modernity, this is stuff we need to pay attention to, and for the most part, it's not happening. Okay, so section six, how should we theorize racial justice? So throughout my career, I've learned, I've learned a great deal from feminist theory, and as some of you may know, my fourth book in fact was co-authored with well-known feminist theorist Carol Pateman, and Susan Muller Oakley's book, Justice, Gender, and the Family. That was a book very useful for me in terms of theorizing racial justice, because for those who have read it, you know, Oaken goes systematically to sort of male justice theorists of her time, and he says, well, communitarianism doesn't going to work, libertarianism, no. The best prospect for theorizing gender justice is John Rawls. Rawls himself has very little to say about gender justice, but that has a sort of most theoretical potential. And I followed Oaken because you know, I think that in her argument goes through, perhaps even more strongly in the case of race. So, but it's interesting because unlike Rawls, knows it explicitly demarcates corrective justice as one of the three components of the entitlement theory. So it's you know, kind of weird. Rawls mentioned, so far as I, I, I know of anybody in you know, sort of knows different, please correct me, the phrase compensator justice appears in the 2,000 pages of Rawls' five books, a grand total of twice, so far as I know. As I say, if you guys know different, please let me know. Whereas in the case of Nozick, there's this formal demarcation. There's justice and appropriation in transfer, and then also there's rectificatory justice. Nonetheless, uh, this is not a part of the political spectrum I spend most time on, so I just assume, having read Nozick, I've done my duty, I don't have to read any more of this stuff, and I've all along, all these years, since grad school, to a sort of implication the level of my ignorance, I've just assumed that libertarians are, in theory, committed to corrective justice, even if they haven't done much about it. And recently, I've come to realize that that's false, that Nozick is very much an outlier. He thought there was this commitment, but it's not the case that you go to sort of contemporary libertarian literature finance. And a good example, there are two good examples. There's the Cambridge Companion to Nozick's book, which you know, doesn't have any index entries for race, racism, or reparations. And even more strikingly, came up just this year, the Rutledge Handbook of Libertarianism. And again, race is completely marginalized. So it turns out that it's really only Nozick who has a strong commitment to rectification. He at least mentions it, and other libertarians don't. So this is not hospitable territory to be in racial justice, even though if you're committed to the sort of um, supremacy of John Locke as your inspiration, and John Locke in the second treatise says explicitly that violators of natural law have a right to reparations, why can't you use that? Well, in theory you can, but these folks are not interested. And in the state, certainly, um, that side of the political spectrum, that's not where any discourse on racial justice flourishes. So the place you need to go is to left liberals, if not Rawls himself, you know, people in sort of that section of the spectrum. 
But then here's this weird parallel with libertarianism. Similar marginalization of race. And I've sort of tracked this, um, and I have an exchange with um, William Blackhouse at Harvard, Tommy Shelby, and sort of lead up to this um, critique I have of Tommy. I sort of look at 40 years' work of the secondary literature on, on roles, and I point out the marginality of race there also. And this, I think the sort of most important example, because it's so recent, John Mandel and David Reedy's Blackwell Companion to Roles, so book of nearly 600 pages, race about one and a half pages, and not any theoretical consideration, just a listing by Aaron Kelly, Aaron Kelly's chapter, sort of negative racial indicators. And you look in the index for something like affirmative action, you get an I kid you not, a single sentence. So think about this. This is arguably the single most important measure in the post-war period of corrective racial justice in the United States, and it gets a single sentence. So that's an indication of the utter marginality of race as a theme in this body of work. So I then want to sort of make the case that the problem is ideal theory. And ideal theory, as you know, is not just normative theory, it's a normative theory of a perfect just society. The Ross, I mean, the vast Ross and secondary literature gives us this immense body of work in which the correction of historical injustices is a non-topic. And insofar as racial injustice is large amount of historical injustice and the legacy that's left behind, this is why the apparatus itself is inimical to the exploration of these issues. And um, the political theorist at the University of Chicago, Jennifer Pitts, who works on issues like imperialism and colonialism, has a very illuminating book, A Turn to Empire, The Rise of Imperial Liberalism in Britain and France. And it argues that before 1800, you get a liberalism, which is in significant respects anti-imperialist, anti-racist, but then after the 1800 period, we then get a more uniform racist and imperialist liberal theory. And what I like about the book, uh, apart from the in sort of historical detail, is the neatness of the phrase, an imperial liberalism. And my argument would be that what we've been left with today is a liberalism that is not a liberalism that's sort of genuine inclusive of all, a liberalism sort of shaped by an imperial liberalism. There's an Italian philosopher, Domenico Lasordo, liberalism a counter history, which has you know, some wonderful you know, sort of get down in the dirt details about the amazingly horrible stuff that liberalism has been complicit with over the years. So once you recognize the extent to which liberalism has been shaped by, of course, by gender domination that is sort of well documented by feminist theorists, by imperial domination, by racial domination, you recognize that we're going to work with liberalism as a political ideology. We need to be sensitive to the fact that its conceptual apparatus is going to bear the stigmata of these historical systems of domination. And my claim is that the preference for ideal theory, roles and rosenism, this is one example of this kind of stigmatic, because it then means that there's a refusal to confront the Western history of domination of the non-West and the question this raises about the need for corrective and justice. Okay, last time, two or three minutes or so. Okay, so how then would you sort of do this? Well, my argument is that the thing to do is to use the roles and apparatus. This, the essence of the roles and apparatus, I claim, is not that it's focused on ideal theory. The essence is the device of veiled prudential choice. Okay? Prudential choice on the conditions of stipulated ignorance, and you then see well, what you get out of that. So Rawls' own apparatus sort of used 
for um, deriving principles of, of justice for an ideal society, I say, let's use this device of representation, rules and terminology, and sort of apply it to the different end of coming up with principles of correct justice. And in, in my case, give my full spectrum of racial justice. How would you do that? What you do is you restrict the options of the society that the people behind the veil are going to enter. It's not going to be an ideal society, it's going to be an R1 dominant society. And the question you then need to ask yourself is, okay, I know when the veil lifts, I'm going to enter into an R1 dominant society. What I do not know is whether I'm going to be a member of the R1s or the R2s. And the veil is thin enough, so we know it's an R1 dominant order, but it's thick enough to block knowledge of demographic proportion. So you want to you know, avoid the, the um, strategy of maximizing expected utility as a strategy. So the question is, am I going to enter into the US in 1920? So maybe 90% white, hey, I have a good chance of being an R1. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to play the odds and say, let's go for racism. Or could I, alas, enter you know, South Africa, which is like a 12%, maybe not a good strategy after all. So we need to make sure you don't know demographic proportion of the so my claim would then be that worry that you're going to end up as an R2 once a day lives. You're going to, let's say, a black woman in the segregated south side of Chicago. Let's say you're going to be a Latina in the American Southwest. Let's say you're going to be a Native American in the reservation. You're thinking to yourself, oh my god, these are not good options at all. What measures of corrective justice, what measures of public policy would you want to see put in place to make sure that to use technical philosophical language, you are as unscrewed as possible <laughs> once the veil lifts and you turn out to an argument. And I basically argue, and I'm drawing in part on in other essays and elsewhere, that you come up with three principles of corrective justice, which I claim sort of summarizes very neatly sort of different ways people can be racially discriminated against. My claim would be that there'd be ending racial exploitation, which would cover not just affirmative action, but the more radical demand you, you got in the states periodically since the end of the Civil War, the demand for reparations. Um, in terms of you know, the, your sort of status as a citizen, the ending of second-class citizenship would sort of cover a wider range of things, not merely having effective um, political input into the system, but also things like the ending of the massive expansion of the criminal justice system. I'm sure as you know, U.S. imprisons more people in the world. It's about, about 5% of the world's population. And these are overwhelmingly black and brown people. And there's a report to the U.N. which says that on current trends, um, one in three black Americans is likely to go to prison in his lifetime. So that will cover that. And then I sort of have a sort of catch-all category, which includes something I've seen weird, like you know, the cultural, the cognitive, evaluative, the somatic, and the ontological, and it's just it's all subsumed under racial respect. And the, by the um, cognitive, evaluative, I'm referring to the very influential work of my colleague, Randall Fricker, talking about epistemic injustice, and I make a case that you have systemic epistemic injustice in the treatment of people of color, in that not only do you not heed their testimony, sort of testimonial injustice, but the concepts, sort of hermeneutical approaches for the understanding of the world, you don't heed them either. And in, a, in another, another paper, not, not this one, um, I, so I, I've, I've recently just exited from being president of the Central Division of the AP, and my presidential address, I tried to make a case that ideal theory is itself a form of epistemic injustice, in that in this body of work, there's no dialogue 
with you know, the sort of theorizations of injustice by black Americans, and that the conception of society, corporate event for mutual advantage, does not take account of the obvious fact that you're a white supremacist state, and if you're serious about social justice, you need to have that concept up front and center. So that's basically the idea, and as you can see, I'm trying to do this within a Rawlson framework, I'm trying to do a sort of mainstream liberal thing, but my claim is that even within this framework, you can get radical outcomes. Thank you. And when I read uh, an early version of, of Charles's paper, I basically agreed um, with the thrust of what Charles had to say. I'm not so sure that I um, myself would go down the Rawlsian route, um, even if I were to talk about uh, racial justice. But I think what bothered me, um, and not directly Charles's paper, but what bothered me was the sort of uh, one underlying assumption that seemed to come out um, in the early version was the thought that we can employ um, the tools of philosophy in order to solve the problem of race. I mean, obviously, Charles doesn't say it in, in this kind of um, bare way. But, but my, uh, my worry was that there was a kind of assumption that philosophy can solve the problem. If we, bring, if we, bear, if we bring to bear philosophical theories of justice, then we can somehow address this, uh, this uh, uh, problem of, of, of racial justice, this endemic um, uh, systematic and and uh, and very very neglected issue of, of racial justice. <coughs> and my sense is that philosophy may itself be part of the problem. I uh, that's why the paper is entitled Philosophical Racism. So I wanted to set aside the question about racial justice in order to ask more um, whether there is a problem in philosophy such that philosophy is itself part of the problem of racism rather than. Um, uh, something that we go to, a discipline that we go to in order to solve the problem of social justice. And one reason, I guess, why this uh, possibility arises for me is because of my uh, recent um, uh, engagement with modern African philosophy, which um, <coughs> I did not come to because I was concerned about racism as such. Uh, there were other reasons. But one of the striking things about um, uh, modern African philosophy is of course its engagement with the Western philosophical tradition, but um, it does not really explicitly thematize, as you would do from an African-American perspective, it doesn't uh, explicitly thematize race uh, so much as um, um, a whole form of um, racially determined cultural dis discrimination and cultural de denigration. And according to uh, modern African philosophy, West the Western tradition uh, has um, a large part to play in the formation of um, racist ideologies. And it has that role to play in, in large part because, of course, uh, in the Western tradition, 
a certain image of Africa and a certain image of Africans uh, plays quite an important negative role um, in terms of setting out a, a theories of human nature, let's say, or theories of knowledge, or theories of rational belief. So in a certain sense, uh, Africa is the, is, is the negative image of everything that is uh, good about, um, about uh, uh, the Western tradition, broadly speaking. So I find that quite interesting because so the, 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 the African tradition challenges um, the Western tradition, and the claim basically is a form of philosophical racism. So that's what I want to explore a little bit, take, pick, picking up certain um, issues from um, Charles's paper. So I'm going to set aside largely the question about um, African-American race relations, and I'm also largely going to set aside the question about racial justice, especially in the, in the roles in mode. If there's time at the end of my remarks, I'll, I'll return to it, but I, I doubt there will be time. I say some about that in the, in the written version of the paper. What I really want to focus on is I want to say something about the difference between um, social racism and philosophical racism. Uh, then I want to say something about the um, uh, diagnosis of philosophical racism by African thinkers. And then I'll say something about um, uh, possible responses to that diagnosis. Um, and I think these uh, responses are quite, uh, are in themselves quite problematic, but I'll, 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 I'll say something more when, when I get there. So let me first begin with the distinction between ordinary racism or social racism and philosophical racism. And here I really pick up on uh, uh, Charles' um, uh, discussion of the concept of race in the first part of his paper, which I think is a very, very rich discussion, um, extremely informed uh, historically, but also uh, uh, he, uh, Charles sets out the ambiguities that attend the concept of race I think with great clarity and, and really quite comprehensively. Now, towards the end of his discussion, Charles then decides to um, put aside the metaphysical debate about race. Um, and I think he sides largely with those um, theorists who think of race as a social construction. So in that sense, think of race as um, not having, as it were, the concept of race as not having, as it were, an objective referent um, or not responding to anything real in the world, but, um, but being a social construction. In fact, um, uh, perhaps Charles even thinks that uh, the concept of race is a largely ideological undertaking. And I have some sympathy with this, but I also have some reservations about that. So I have some reservations about setting aside the metaphysical or the ontological debate about uh, race, about whether, whether or not there is an objective reference to the concept of race. And I think one of my reasons why I have some reservations about that is because I think in the history of philosophy, that was a dominant debate. Um, so it was quite important in the history of philosophy, so far as it concerned itself with race debates, whether or not there were, in fact, different human races. And that was an ontological question. It was a question about whether um, the human race originated from one source or whether it originated from several sources. And of course, then uh, later on, uh, that became a, a debate about whether there are properties that uh, black people have that white people don't have, uh, uh, and vice versa. So I think that in the history of the philosophical discussion about race, um, the ontological status does actually um, matter, even though I agree with Charles that um, it's, a, it's a largely indeterminate debate, so um, there are no clear con conclusions to the debate. The other reservations I have about the social constructing reading is 
it has a little bit the feel for me of um, um, uh, sort of taking an external perspective, diagnosing diagnosing the mistakes of others. So so we can say of others that this is a is a is an ideological debate. This is a socially constructed concept, but it kind of exonerates us almost um, from um, uh, participating in in a race debate. So it, it seems to me that, for me, the, uh, the, uh, the view of, of race simply as a social construction or simply as an ideology that was invented in order to justify other things is, um, is too easy a way out. So it seems to me that um, even for uh, ordinary racism or social racism, the fact that the, there is a certain ambiguity about whether, they, whether or not there is anything to the concept actually matters. Um, so the ambiguity about whether or not the concept refers to anything at all is socially relevant. And I think it's socially relevant at least in the sense that um, that is an ambiguity that has, shaped, helped the, that, that has helped shape the history of a concept that we use. And we use any concept, I take it, um, with its historical baggage, as it were, um, packed into the concept. So I think that even if we were to say at a theoretical level that race is a mere social construct, I think the way in which we use the term race carries the connotations of the philosophical debate. It carries the connotations of the debate as to whether or not there are in fact different races and whether or not there are properties that uh, attach to uh, one set of human beings vis-à-vis um, another. Moreover, it also seems to me that um, the ambiguity of the, um, of the um, objective referent um, helps to foster sustained prejudicial belief about race. So in the paper I um, distinguish between, uh, well in the paper I, I try to get some sense of what a prejudicial belief is, and I, I, I do this very quickly because it's not my main concern in the paper, but it seems to me that um, a prejudicial belief would not be a true belief about something, because if it were a true belief, then it would not be prejudicial. Now I know that that's somewhat contentious. One could, for instance, say one could have a true but unjustified belief about race. But but the thought here is that um, uh, if if it were a true belief, if it were true that some races are inferior um, in relation to other races, then it seems to me it wouldn't be a prejudicial belief. I also don't think it's a false belief. Um, because it seems to me that if it were a false belief, um, one wouldn't really sustain it over long periods of time. I, I don't think one knowingly holds false beliefs. So if one holds a belief of which one knows that it is false, then I can't really see that the social salience of this belief would be sustainable um, over time. If, on the other hand, one um, has a belief about the inferiority of the social races, in relation to which it's not clear whether or not um, there is an answer to that, um, to that um, belief, uh, true or false to that belief, then I think that kind of uh, belief can sustain itself um, without um, sort of justification for quite some time. So it seems to me that it's quite important for um, prejudicial belief about race that it not be clear whether or not that belief is true or false that there be a kind of ambiguity about the referent to the belief. And that somebody who then holds a belief about uh, the inferiority of some races versus others simply doesn't, simply does, simply refuses to, to engage in the argument about the truth or falsity. 
um, but rather trades uh, on the ambiguity <coughs> about that. So for me, um, a, a, um, ordinary or, or social raci racism would be uh, a belief in the inferiority of um, some races versus others um, that is of a kind that, that refuses to engage uh, in the question about the rational warrant of that belief, but that is fostered by the historical ambiguity um, of the uh, objective reference um, uh, regarding the concept of race. So that is, for me, roughly ordinary racist belief, i.e. belief in the inferiority of some races over others that refuses really to give a reason, refuses to um, engage in uh, arguments about its rational war warrant, but that, that, that benefits or that is sustained uh, by the fact that there is in any case an ambiguity about the ontological st status of the, of the concept. Now what is then um, philosophical racism? Now, it seems to me that philosophical racism can't be ordinary racism if ordinary racism is uh, belief in the inferiority of some races over others that refuses to engage in discussion about its rational warrant, the rational warrant about the belief. Because, of course, um, uh, philosophy as an, as an activity uh, prides itself in demanding rational warrant. So it can't be uh, like ordinary um, racist belief. But it's nonetheless the case that in the history of the philosophical debates about race, this is um, what, what, what happened is that racist <coughs> beliefs, i.e. beliefs or claims about the inferiority of some races vis-a-vis other, were affirmed even despite the acknowledged indeterminacy about the ontological reference. So in, in the philosophical debate, um, and I hear a quote from Justin Smith, who's written a really um, very, um, uh, very good book on, on this issue. In the philosophical debate around the sort of 17th century, end of 17th century, the project of racial typology went ahead explicitly on the model of species taxonomy, even as its principal contributors insisted that there could be no species-like or, or essential divisions within the human species, to the extent that this species consisted entirely in descendants of the same original ancestors, and to the extent that speciation was not yet a consideration. So Smith's claim here is that the project of racial typology went ahead even though um, uh, there was also an insistence that species-like divisions within the human race were not really plausible. And what's interesting to me here is, is, is the thought that um, there was acknowledgement of the, as it were, the indeterminacy regarding the objective referent of racial, uh, uh, of the concept of race and racial distinctions, but nonetheless a typology went ahead that basically established a hierarchy of the, of the lower and the, uh, and the higher races. Now I think, that, I think that that is historically actually quite fascinating that this happened, um, but I think that um, this probably happens all the time. We persuade ourselves all the time um, of, um, of things that we like to persuade ourselves of. So I don't think it's, it's especially um, unusual for this to happen, but it's nonetheless interesting that he diagnoses this. So for me then, philosophical racism is um, in a sense not unlike social racism um, uh, in that it affirms the superiority of some races vis-a-vis -vis others. The difference is that it claims rational warrant for this belief. Um, so philosophical racism in that sense is more pernicious than um, ordinary racism, because philosophical racism would um, in virtue of its um, 
claim to two sovereign status, claim a certain rational warrant uh, for, um, for its pronouncements. So then philosophical racism for me is the affirmation as rationally warranted of prejudicial beliefs about race. And I do think that this is what happened in the history, in the philosophical um, history about, about race. And it was um, a philosophical history. I don't think we can sort of pretend that these debates happened somewhere else. They did happen in, um, in the discipline uh, itself. So philosophical racism then for me is the um, affirmation as rationally warranted <coughs> of belief in um, the inferiority of some races vis-a-vis -vis others. But I also think that it is extremely difficult to, I mean, I think that, so I think it's extremely difficult to then think, well, how does that affect philosophical thinking? How does racist belief <coughs> affect philosophical thinking? I think that's very, very difficult to um, come to grips with i.e. the question of, well, if, say, Kant had not held racist beliefs, um, would his epistemology have been any different? Would his moral philosophy have been any different? I find this very, very difficult to, um, to determine. But I do think it is a mistake on our part to think that, and I think that's what we tend to do, I think we tend now to acknowledge that there is or was a problem of race in philosophy, but that this use was a problem um, of individual historical thinkers holding personal prejudicial beliefs about race. So Kant is a good example. So we think that Kant was obviously a racist, um, uh, but that he was, um, that, but that his racist beliefs can be divorced from his, um, from his philosophy. Moreover, that Kant himself can, as it were, uh, be singled out as one who was um, a racist philosophical thinker within a community of otherwise unblemished philosophers. Um, and so we, we think that Kant was obviously a racist, uh, we think that Hegel was obviously a racist, we're not so sure about Locke, and we're also not so sure about Mill, because Mill had certain compensating features. Um, but of course, when you start working, and I work quite a lot on Kant, when you start working on, um, on Kant's uh, racism, it's quite interesting to see that many of the um, pronouncements that Kant made that are attributed to Kant, Kant actually borrows from other thinkers, borrows from Hume, borrows from Linnaeus. So what, what emerges then is, as it were, a tradition <coughs> of racist thinking and a tradition of uh, um, philosophers taking the word of their predecessors for granted because of course they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be wrong in what they say because of course they have warrant for what they say. And if Hume can be trusted to be right about, um, uh, about black people, then Kant takes that on, and if Kant can be trusted, then Hegel will take it on. So they, what, what, what becomes quite obvious is a, is a certain tradition of, um, uh, of racism in the, uh, in the canon, where one thinker takes the authority of a predecessor um, as sufficient for continuing that thought. Again, I don't think that there's anything particularly unusual about this. I think this is what we do. Um, but I think that this is what we should um, acknowledge that we do. Now, I think our tendency to think that Arya Kant unfortunately was a racist, um, uh, but he stuck out like a sore, sore thumb. Yeah? That's, that's one tendency. We, we tend to individuate the problem. We also, I think, tend to think it's a, it's a problem of the past. They used to be racist, but we're not anymore. I think that's a very prevalent thought. 
But I think that's implausible because we also work in the tradition. And we may not overtly engage in remarks about how some races are inferior to others, but I think that, um, uh, uh, I think that there are ways of, um, um, there are ways of um, discounting uh, the views of others that needn't appeal directly to their skin color, or that needn't uh, directly appeal to their cultural belonging. Now, how might one say that a community, that, that a philosophical community, um, for, first of all, that there exists a philosophical community with a philosophical tradition, and that tradition is racist, um, in more than just the sense of um, it makes derogatory remarks about other people's skin colors. I think racism extends to more than derogatory remarks about other people's skin colors and remarks about their intelligence levels as a, as a result of that. In asking how it might, how, how the Western philosophical tradition might strike a non-member as racist, um, I want to give you an example of, uh, by Poulain Hondonji, who is a Beninois philosopher, uh, um, started off as a Rousseau scholar. And in one of his papers, um, Hutonji um, cites Husserl when uh, Husserl discusses the crisis of European philosophy in Europe. Um, it's a sort of Vienna lecture, 1935 um, paper that he cites. And Hutonji says that in the context of this um, address, Husserl says that uh, he, he basically makes a distinction between uh, philosophical reasoning and ordinary reasoning. And Husserl says in that, uh, in that lecture, apparently, that um, when it comes to ordinary reasoning, even the Papuan can reason. So the Papuan can reason, and that's quite, that's quite, quite a concession. It's quite a concession that the Papuan can reason. But of course, when it comes to, to philosophical reasoning, the Papuan cannot reason. Philosophical reasoning is the preserve of European culture. And Hondonji's point here is to say that Husserl was concerned with something else. He wasn't concerned with the Papuan, he wasn't concerned with racism. Hontonji's point here is to say that that remark, uh, that distinction goes down like common knowledge in the, uh, in the uh, circle that he's addressing. So Hontonji is saying, however scientific, objective, or rational a discourse claims to be, it is always directly or indirectly shaped by its potential audience. As a matter of fact, None of the European philosophers suspected that they could be read someday by the Negroes of Africa or the Papuans of New Guinea. They felt free, therefore, to talk about the latter without fearing to be contradicted. A discourse is partly determined in its content by the actual configuration of the discussion circle in which it is performed and by the frontiers, both visible and invisible, of this circle. What I say depends on who I'm not talking to as well as on who, who I am talking to. Now, so Ndonji's point here is to say that um, that, the, that the Papuan cannot reason philosophically is just a piece of common philosophical knowledge in the tradition. It's not something that Husserl needs to argue. It's known. And this, of course, puts the Papuan in quite a difficult position. Because if the Papuan wants to contest this, then the Papuan has to um, contest this on terms that are accessible to the, to the European philosopher. I.e., if the Papuan wants to contest the claim that Papuans can't do philosophy, he's going to have to do philosophy by European terms. But if he does philosophy by European terms, then in a certain sense he's showing that the Papuan can't do philosophy. Or certainly there is no such thing as Papuan philosophy. If the Papuan does philosophy, it'll be European philosophy. 
And this is what in, um, in modern African um, philosophy is called the problem of extroversion, i.e. the problem that even if you get admitted into the philosophical uh, community, you're going to have to do it on terms that are acceptable um, to the philosophical community. So you're going to have to turn yourself inside out a little bit. And that feeling, uh, I mean that experience of um, having to enter, having to gain admit, admittance into the, into the community by disavowing your, um, um, your own existential experiences um, and the opportunity to, to theorize these existential experiences is in a certain sense what modern African philosophy is preoccupied with. This problem of how can we, how can we um, do philosophy without in so doing betraying ourselves. Now, one might, of course, say, well, that's all very nice. Um, it's all very sad. But in some sense, perhaps it's just a soft story. I mean, uh, if the Papuan has anything um, to say that is of philosophical significance, then the Papuan should say it. Then the Papuan shouldn't just complain that we're not going to listen. So the Papuan should tell us what it is that is distinctive about Papuan experience, what, what it is that is philosophically uh, distinctive or philosophically interesting about Papuan experience. Um, so in a certain sense, I think this, is, this, can, this kind of response can be um, seen as a demand for saying, well, what difference would it make? What difference <coughs> would it make if philosophical thinking were to admit Papuan thought? Would it make any difference? What difference would it make? What difference would it have made to Kant's theory of knowledge had he entertained the possibility that Papuans can reason? So... What difference would it make? Remember, I said it's very, very difficult to know what, um, how, how our philosophical thinking is racist, apart from um, derogatory remark, um, remarks about, uh, about uh, skin color. I just want to give you one example by another um, uh, African philosopher, Kwasi Viridu, who's, who's one of my, my favorites, um, who tries to give you some sense of what difference it might make. And Viridu, of course, um, primarily addresses his African philosophical audience, but secondarily the Western audience. And Viridu takes up the Hondonji problem of extroversion, i.e. Thinking in, thinking in a philosophical language that is, that is as it were, um, divorced from the um, African social and metaphysical context. Um, so uh, Viridu addresses this issue of being, having been inducted as a philosophy student in a uh, philosophical canon that has very, very little um, resonance in the social reality that he is experiencing at the same time. So what you have is the problem of having a stock of philosophical concepts in which you do um, uh, theorizing, but then living in a world in which a very different stock of concepts holds. So we really says, think of the possible enormity of the philosophical deadwood we might be carrying through our historically enforced acquisition of philosophical training in the medium of foreign languages. There are many such concepts, but let me mention only the following. Reality, being, existence, thing, object, entity, substance, property, quality, fact, truth, mind, soul, spirit. And the list goes on and on. And we really point here is to say that these are philosophical concepts um, that we have been trained in, we now, African philosophers, have been trained in, but that, but that do not attach to our 
our social perception of reality uh, uh, and do not attach to our um, traditional morality. So there is, in that sense, this, um, this gap between philosophical discourse and socially experienced reality. And of course, Wiredu invites then his African um, uh, fellow philosophers to analyze these inherited concepts and to see how they diverge from uh, traditional African languages, in, in uh, Wiredu's case, Akan. But I think I, I'm, I'm mentioning Wiredu as an example simply in order to illustrate that um, here is a claim that it makes a huge difference to how we think philosophically, whether or not we include or exclude certain um, classes of human beings and their uh, experience of being human from philosophical uh, consideration. So the claim here is, on Verita's part, that the Western tradition, um, uh, the Western tradition is full of what he calls false universals, i.e. Uh, concepts in relation to which the Western tradition um, assumes universal validity, but when um, tested against uh, a calm social reality and a calm stock of concepts, um, that, that, that claim uh, doesn't, doesn't go through. Let me then close by saying a couple of things about what one might do uh, in response to philosophical racism. How might one respond to it? So, I've said that um, one form of one form that racism in uh, or philosophical racism uh, has taken is this idea that uh, there are some uh, races that are inferior compared to others, and we have social warrant uh, we have rational warrant for this for this claim. Uh, that I have said um, uh, then gives rise to a kind of tradition of racist thinking where that kind of claim <coughs> is accepted as rationally warranted and carried forward, and so a whole body of knowledge builds up that is premised on this. Uh, on this belief as rational war rationally warranted, and that in turn leads to the exclusion from philosophical participation, but also to the exclusion um, from theorizing the experience, the distinctive uh, moral, social, uh, metaphysical experience of particular um, types of um, uh, groups of, of, of human beings. If that is plausible, then of course uh, the Western tradition um, has a big problem one might say. Um, uh, it's a very, very big problem if it's plausible, and it's not at all clear to me what, if anything, one can do about it. I certainly don't think that one can uh, clean it up. And this is where I think I would agree with Charles that uh, the sort of radical approach can be quite self-deceptive, because there's no time at which we simply um, start the clock anew and come up with a whole new um, uh, sort of... Uh, a new theory or a new set of concepts. So we're always going to carry the legacy of this around with us. Now, of course, one might say that um, something like Beredo's claim that the Western tradition trades and false universals is hugely overstated, especially in today's context. One might say that nobody trades in universals anymore because uh, philosophy as an academic uh, discipline is so divided in terms of division of labor that nobody dares say anything big at all anymore. Yeah? We all beaver away in our small little fields in our small little corners. Um, and so African philosophy can just insert itself in these, uh, in these small things. Now, I do think that there's something to this idea that, uh, that th this is just too global a critique. We really this is just too global a critique. The false universals, well, uh, in a sense, all universals are false. Yeah? But they can all be, as it were, um, uh, shift 
be shown to be wrong or mistaken. But I think that teleologically speaking, teleologically speaking, I do think that philosophy as a tradition does try or does claim to aspire to something like the truth or something like universal validity. And so the likely exclusion of, well, the historical exclusion of some forms of human experience from philosophical discussion on grounds that they weren't worth considering philosophically, I think is, um, is a problem. So does that then mean that one should, um, that all of us should now run off to do modern African philosophy? <laughs> to some extent, yes. I mean, to some extent, why not? Oh, I mean, it doesn't have to be modern African, it could also be Chinese or something like that. So basically, why not read a little bit more widely? Um, can never really hurt, I think. But of course, even then, that is not going to be a sort of global, um, it's not going to be uh, something that reforms the tradition root and branch. As I said, I don't think it can be reformed. I do think that it, we can acknowledge that there's a problem and we can work on it in a much more piecemeal uh, piece fashion. Um, I'll just, I, I think I'll close here. I, I'll just give you one example of what I have in mind. I mean, I have from my, so from my experience, I found it really quite troubling to engage in this um, route, uh, in this field of philosophy, um, because I initially thought um, I didn't think I, I was going to be exposed to what I was being exposed to. I find it quite troubling in the sense that it does put your confidence in the, in the discipline to, to the test. Um, recently, I've, I've uh, devised a course in modern African philosophy, um, and we look at um, uh, African um, philosophical thinking. And I'll just give you one example of how difficult um, it can be for us to still to recognize certain forms of thought as um, philosophically interesting. So uh, we, had, um, we had a session on Yoruba belief in personal destiny. And Yoruba belief in personal destiny um, is, is taken out of the Ifa system, which is a Yoruba divination system. It's a very intricate system of orally transmitted verses. And in this uh, body of work, there is um, a, a sort of allegory about how you acquire your personal destiny prenatally by choosing it in a certain way, and then you go through the first time, and then you forget all about it, and then you are on earth following your personal destiny. So this was an intricate allegory of how you choose your personal destiny prenatally, and then how you forget about it as you go through the first time. And the students have very big difficulties thinking of this as anything other than an anthropologically interesting fact about the Yoruba. So they had real difficulty thinking that this could be about them, that this could be a claim about them. And I just found it quite striking that the same students would have no difficulties thinking about Plato's cave, which is also a big, funny story about what somebody does and goes out, would have no problem accepting the philosophical significance of that. So I think. I think what we perhaps need to learn is to um, perhaps, in a sense, look for philosophy where we least thought we, we would find it. Some, something like that, yeah? But I found that quite striking, that strictly these two uh, examples are just allegories. They're meant to tell you something else that's significant. And yet in the one case, the students immediately put it in the field of anthropology, and in the other case, it immediately counts as as philosophy. And I think it's that sort of divide that we need to overcome, and my claim would be that that too is part of the struggle against racism. <laughs>